My name is uh, Michael, and I serve here as a pastor of Genesis. Uh, Brantz uh, has welcomed you, but I just uh, add an additional welcome if you are here for the very first time. Uh, thanks uh, for coming. Thanks for visiting. And if you just come back, maybe over the past few weeks, uh, we hope that uh, you're beginning to get connected uh, into the community. Uh, I think probably the best way to get connected is not just by attending gatherings on Sundays, but uh, getting involved and connected with uh, what we call community groups, which takes place uh, throughout the week. You can learn more about community groups by just visiting our website or talking with uh, our connections team at uh, the Welcome Center. Uh, tonight, this is our third annual. I want to invite you to come back uh, tonight at 6 o'clock in the p.m. Uh, we are doing our third annual Genesis Christmas party. How many people are coming back for that? Not, not, with, not with a show of hands, with the sound of like noise or something. Thank you. Tonight, uh, it's kind of exciting because uh, <clears throat> we've done competitions in the past. Uh, one, we do Genesis Got Talent, and so on display will be about a, about a dozen people's uh, musical abilities, poetic abilities, and uh, other just odd human tricks that they can do. Uh, we've got uh, the Ugly Sweater Competition, and I am not entered. This is actually a nice sweater, not an ugly one, so... If you've got an ugly sweater and want a chance at winning 50 bucks to Amazon, bring your best ugly sweater. <clears throat> and uh, we're also doing a, a dessert competition of uh, the best tasting and the best looking uh, dessert. So it's not too late to run out to Stop and Shop and see what they have for you. Um, but uh, come back tonight. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a great time to hang out. And it's another way to get connected uh, into the community and just what God's doing in this place. So uh, let me pray for us, and then we are going to jump into our final encounter story, a story of grace. Uh, so Jesus, uh, just give thanks that you love us. Jesus, I give thanks that you know each of us by name. Uh, God, you know exactly where each of us are right now as it relates to you. Uh, God, if there's anyone here that is just feeling distant uh, from you, uh, God, I pray that they would experience your grace today uh, and be drawn close to you. God, if there is anyone like Will had shared that is just overwhelmed with anxiety, uh, Jesus, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them and overwhelm them, not with anxiety, but just with a sense of your peace and your presence. Uh, Jesus, I pray that uh, today uh, would be a very transformational day for our church as we finish this encounter series uh, by looking at a story of grace. We pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Uh, Twelve weeks ago, we started this series called Encounters, and behind the heart of Encounters was looking at how people uh, were encountered by Jesus, and then specifically looking at how those people began to encounter uh, those, the world uh, around them. And so uh, we've got uh, 12 words that kind of represent where we've been. We have a story of redemption, a story of transformation, a story of mission, a story of life. A story of celebration, a story of choice, a story of truth, a story of compassion, a story of healing, a story of freedom, and a story of betrayal. And today, we finish by looking at a story of grace. Uh, I want to thank Laura. I don't know where you are, but uh, faithfully over the last 12 weeks, she's made a sign for us. So Laura, thank you for putting in the time and effort to do that. What I uh, in particularly like about uh, this story is not so much what we learn uh, about the man who was actually encountered uh, by Jesus, but what we actually learn 
uh, about Jesus. Uh, we always are learning something about Jesus in these encounter stories, but specifically today, uh, just absolutely blown away with what we see in Jesus. Uh, I could ask you, what are you like in your worst moment? And uh, when things are getting tight, when things are getting overwhelming for you, just when you're maybe getting persecuted, what becomes of you or what are you like? Most of us, if we're honest, we get either pretty angry, jaded, bitter. We, uh, I don't know what we get like, but what are you like in your worst moment? Well, we see Jesus today in his worst moment. Uh, We see Jesus on the cross. And when he's on the cross, he's being mocked. Uh, Insults are being hurled at him. Uh, He's continuing to be rejected and continuing to be doubted and denied. Uh, And in this worst moment when humanity is at its worst and Jesus is in his worst moment, we see the best of Jesus. And so rather than cursing the crowds, uh, rather than wiping out the crowds, uh, Jesus offers prayers for the crowds. Uh, So what I love about this encounter story today is what we see in Jesus. Uh, Specifically, as we're going to look at, uh, we see just how gracious actually Jesus was. Uh, And in particular, there there had to be hundreds, if not thousands of people who had gathered around the cross that day uh, to watch this spectacle of three men uh, who were being crucified. But there was only one uh, whose life was not necessarily changed, but his eternity was changed because of his encounter uh, with Jesus. This is a story that some of you might be familiar with. Uh, I want to read it. If you have a Bible, it's in Luke chapter uh, 23. And I'm just going to jump in the middle. Jesus is now on the cross. And uh, there's a man on his left, and there's a man on his right. And in verse 32, it says, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. <clears throat> and when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He's praying for the people who have surrounded him on the cross and are hurling insults. Verse 35, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Verse 36, the soldiers also came up and mocked him. And they offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Verse 38, there was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Verse 20 or 42. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Verse 43. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, This morning, I'm going to do this uh, relatively quickly, but my heart was to really answer uh, or ask and answer three questions and then finish this encounter series with one, what I would consider just absolutely uh, an amazing truth. Uh, So we're going to walk through three questions and answer them uh, that we see in this encounter that this thief had with Jesus. And we're focusing on the thief. There's a lot happening around uh, around the cross, but 
I'm looking at one thief and his encounter with Jesus. So three questions. The first question we'll look at uh, is this. So question number one is, why did this criminal, this thief, even ask Jesus for a pass into paradise? That's number one. Number two, why did Jesus say yes? It just seems, I don't know, it seems to me a little bit unfair that this guy lives such a ruthless life, and in his final moment, he asks for mercy, and he gets it. So where's the justice in that? In his final breath, he asks for paradise, and paradise is granted. How is that fair? How is that just? And then the third question we'll look at is, why didn't Jesus try to persuade the other criminal? Bless you. One criminal is just cursing him. One criminal is crying out to him. Why didn't Jesus, I mean, it's safe to say this guy's as good as dead. Why didn't Jesus get on his A game and start preaching to this guy, start reaching out to this other guy? Why didn't he try to persuade him Sir, you're about to meet God face to face. Like, why didn't he reach out to him? So those are the three questions that um, uh, we'll answer this morning, and then we'll finish with the truth. So the first question is this. Why did this criminal thief even ask Jesus for a pass into paradise? Now, keep in mind that this is not an example of someone who's in the electric chair making a phone call to the governor asking for mercy This is one guy in the electric chair looking at the guy next to him in the electric chair saying, hey, can you save me? It seems at best odd to me that this thief, we have no idea if he knew Jesus beforehand. He may have heard of him. He maybe had heard rumors. But Jesus is completely bloodied and battered beyond recognition. So what on earth possessed this guy to look to a man whose skin had literally been torn off because he had been flogged so severely? What possibly went through this guy's head that he could look through a guy, look at a guy just beaten beyond recognition and say, would you possibly remember me in paradise? I can obviously speculate maybe it wasn't something he saw Jesus do, but maybe it was something he didn't see Jesus do. Everyone's cursing Jesus, sneering, jeering, mocking him, and Jesus offers a prayer. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was he saw Jesus in Jesus, something he'd never seen in someone else. Maybe it was the humility of Jesus. Maybe it was the tenderness in Jesus. Maybe it was his compassion. It could be, but what I think cause led this guy to even ask Jesus such a question of, would you take me, would you remember me in paradise, is he looked at the sign. Now, if you read this story again, I'm going to read actually John's account. Uh, It's a very interesting thing uh, that someone had placed a sign above Jesus's head. Now, John 19 says this, here they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now, Pilate did this to annoy them. He, wanted, he didn't like the Jews. He wanted to just do one more thing to see if he could just annoy the heck out of the Jews. And he did. Now, when I just consider 
these verses that I've just read in John, I'm reminded of a pretty simple truth that God can and will use anyone or anything to accomplish his purposes in our lives. The man who tried to wash his hands of truth, the man who encountered Jesus, we looked at him last week, the man who just looked at truth, absolute truth, in the face and tried to wash his hands of it, became the very man who made a sign in three languages that said, this is the king of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. John makes clear that it was written in Aramaic, which Aramaic, every Hebrew-speaking, reading person in first century would understand Aramaic. It was a language of religion. He had the sign posted in Latin, in the language of the Romans. So the law, the, the, go, the language of government, the, the language of law. And then it was written also in Greek, the language of Greece, meaning the language of culture. If we talked about last week, Jesus is absolute truth. Truth is a person and it's Jesus. And he's the truth for all of humanity. I love that God uses the man who rejected truth to proclaim truth to all of the world in all of the world's languages. There would not be one person who could pass by and not see the sign written in their native tongue and understand that this man in the middle uh, was the king of the Jews. I've met a lot of people over the years that, uh, Michael, if I just got a sign from God, I would believe. Well, okay, well, what kind of sign are you looking for? Well, I don't know, but just any sign. Give me a sign. If God were to give me a sign, I would believe. What I love about this thief on the cross, I don't know if he was the guy looking for a sign his whole life, but in his final moments, he saw a sign. And he looked at the man underneath the sign. And he said, if you're a king, would you take me to be with you in paradise? Now, you might be here and you might be the one that's waiting for a sign or looking for a sign so that you would believe or place your faith, your trust and hope uh, in Jesus. If you are looking for a sign, then read the sign because the sign says Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Consider Jesus. If you want a sign, look to Jesus. His absolutely miraculous birth, his absolutely perfect life without any sin, and his incredible victory over death when he was resurrected on the third day. If you want a sign, Jesus is your sign. This man saw a sign that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Well, I think he saw a sign and he realized he was in the presence of a king. And so he asked the king, the only one who could grant him mercy would be the king. And so he asked for it. I think the other thing that this caused this guy to, to ask this ridiculous request is he feared God. If you go back in the story in verse 40 and 41, it says, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. This man began to realize quickly as his breath was fading away, I'm about to meet God face to face. And he realized in that moment, I'm going to have to give an account to God for the life that I've lived. And something comes over a man when you realize that the life you've lived is probably not a life that is really pleasing to God because it was a life that was bent 
I'm making much of you, not walking with God. And fear came over this man. How would you answer his question to you? One thief looked to the other thief, and he said, don't you fear God? Man, you are about to die. And in your last breath, you're hurling down mockery and, <clears throat> and insults. Man, don't you fear God? How would you answer the thief's question to you? Do you fear God? There's a lot of people, maybe some here, and certainly a lot of people in just our culture, who they don't live with a sense of fear of God. And I'm talking the fear that says, one day I will meet God face to face. There will be people who will meet God face to face. All of us will, but some will meet God face to face and try to impress God with a life well lived. Well, God, I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this. Then there will be other people who will realize well before that day, before they meet God face to face, that they needed saving and they looked to a Savior named Jesus. A holy God is going to look at our list of things that we've accomplished and say, yeah, but you're still not perfect. You're still not holy. You cannot be in the presence of a holy God in your unholiness. And it's too late. I think why this guy asked the question is he saw a sign, he feared God, and I think the third thing is he realized he needed saving. He realized pretty quickly that he was in a mess because his life was a mess. And it's not until we realize that what we're doing is not really working that we start looking for a savior. Now, this guy did not see his savior, did not look for a savior until his very last breath. It's interesting to me how it takes literally us being brought to our knees to realize what we need most is a savior. We need someone outside of ourselves to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. For some people, it literally takes a near-death experience but I love that God is gracious enough to give us all wake-up calls to get each of us to the point to confess like this guy did that he needed saving. One guy was really proud, and he couldn't ask. He mocked him. He jeered Jesus. But one guy prayed. One guy was too prideful on a cross to ask for salvation. But one guy prayed. I think one of the things that prevents us, people that we know, friends, families, neighbors, from asking for salvation is because we don't think we need saving. We don't think that we're really that bad, at least compared to this guy on the cross. Uh, I've read this uh, quote before, but uh, it just stuck with me. It was almost a year ago that I shared this quote from a or 19th century bishop, and he said this, the harlot and the liar and the murderer are short of it, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you are on the crest of an alp, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they are. No matter how good you think you might be, you're still short of a holy and perfect God. Yeah, maybe you could compare yourself to someone who's a thief, a murderer, a molester, and maybe you might think you're a little bit 
better than they are, but our best is still short of God's holiness and perfection. This man was realized he's about to meet God and he wasn't prepared. He saw a sign and he and he asked for salvation. Now, for some, the ask is not that disturbing, right? I mean, why not ask? What do you have to lose? <laughs> Jesus could just say no. Well, it was worth a shot. Okay, so it's not so disturbing that this man asked. But what is disturbing for many is Jesus' response. I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, please keep in mind that this man did not apologize. This man did not say, Jesus, before I ask you, you need to know I hurt a lot of people. I destroyed a lot of, a lot of lives. There was no apparent remorse. There was no apparent confession. There was no apparent apology. It was just this man asked, will you remember me in paradise? Will you remember me in your kingdom? He at least admitted that he was rightly placed on a cross. I'm paying the, the punishment of my crime. I should be here. So at least he, he did that. But why did Jesus say yes? Why did Jesus say yes to this man? Because it just seems really unfair that he could live such a ruthless life and in his final moment, he gets mercy. I don't know if you've talked about this with other people before, maybe wrestled with it yourself, uh, but I know a lot of people are like, this is just not fair. If this is the God of the Bible, that if someone who is, you pick the worst criminal that you can think of, and in their last moment, they cry to Jesus for mercy, and Jesus gives it to them. That is just not fair. How could God do such a thing as allow someone to live their entire life in rebellion, in destruction, in whatever they would do, and in their last moment, they cry uncle and ask for mercy, and God gives it to them? Well, let me ask this question. You don't have to raise your hands, but does that frustrate you? Does that upset you at all? Like, it just doesn't seem right. It just doesn't seem fair. This guy gets a free pass into paradise after living such a horrific lifestyle. How is it just? How is it fair? This guy just gets off the hook. And the answer is this guy did get off the hook. This guy did get a free pass uh, to paradise. But what I want you to see is the one he looked to didn't. He got mercy, but Jesus is the demonstration of God's justice. So this guy didn't get a... He got mercy, but Jesus was paying the penalty for this guy. I read a quote uh, this week by uh, A.W. Tozer, and it says this, God's compassion flows out of his goodness, and goodness without justice is not goodness. God spares us because he is good, but he could not be good if he were not just. Mercy was given, but justice was being served. Mercy for one thief on the cross, and Jesus was serving justice for all of us. So what we see in this encounter is the mercy of God and the justice of God meet. Thief gets mercy, Jesus is serving the justice of God. Now like Tozer said, if God is good, he has to be just. A God who is 
merciful but not just is just, he's not good. Well, we see on the cross with Jesus the collision of mercy and justice. Again, this is another quote I read during the Roman series from Dr. Carson, but he said this, Do you want to see the greatest evidence of the love of God? We'll go to the cross. Do you want to see the greatest evidence of the justice of God? We'll go to the cross. It's where wrath and mercy meet. Holiness and peace kiss each other. The climax of redemptive history is on the cross. So yeah, he got off, but Jesus didn't. I don't want anyone to just kind of gloss over that truth. This man did get a free pass into paradise, but his pass was because the one he looked to was on the receiving end of the full weight of God's wrath uh, for the sin of the world. Now, did the thief on the cross understand what Jesus was doing? Meaning, did he know that Jesus was paying the penalty not only for his sin, but for the sins of the entire world? Meaning, in that moment in time, he was the closest eyewitness to the justice of God being served. Did he realize it? I, I seriously don't think so. I don't think he got in its entirety, what Jesus was doing. I think that he got, I'm about to meet God, and I'm not prepared. But this guy, the sign says he's a king. I will look to the king for salvation, and the king granted this man salvation. That's, at best, what I think this guy understood. Now, Romans chapter 3 says this, God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, okay? What Jesus is doing on the cross is a demonstration of God's justice. Verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, here's my question. We know, if you're sitting here, you're hearing this now, we know in full what Jesus was doing on the cross. We know, sitting here today, that Jesus was perfect without sin, but willingly went to the cross on our behalf to pay the penalty for our sin. We know so much more about what Jesus was doing than this man on the cross did. So my question is, why do we have such a difficult time looking to Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation? This guy figured it out pretty quickly. I just, I'm looking to him. Why is it we and... Everyone else who knows what Jesus has done, what Jesus accomplished. Why is it we have such a difficult time looking to Jesus and Jesus alone to provide salvation, to bring us to God, to make us right with God? I like how D.L. Moody said this. He said, the thief had nails through both hands so that he could not work and nails through each foot so that he could not run errands for the Lord. He could not lift a hand or a foot towards his salvation, and yet Christ offered him the gift of God, and he took it. Christ threw him a passport, and he took him into paradise. It's such a great picture of what Christ did for this man. When we cry, it's not fair that I can't believe that guy is in. Now, we probably all have different guys, but who's your guy? I, I just can't believe he would get in. We all have that person that comes to mind. Our essential frustration, I don't think, is with God's mercy. I think our frustration is our inability 
to stop working for something that God has given us freely. Because if that guy didn't work at all, but yet he got it, I'm frustrated. Why do I feel compelled that I have to keep working for something that God wants to give me freely? I don't think we're frustrated that God is merciful. I think we're thankful. I think we're frustrated that we can't get into our thick skulls, hard hearts, that we don't have to work to earn something that God has freely given us in his son. One of my favorite uh, books that I read probably nearly, uh, gosh, about 25 years ago that really radically reshaped how I understood grace was a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And uh, in it, its author said this, Brendan Manning, how long will it be before we discover we cannot dazzle God with our accomplishments? When, when will we acknowledge that we need not and cannot buy God's favor? When will we acknowledge that we don't have it all together and happily accept the gift of grace? This guy received mercy. He didn't have, I mean, what else did he have to offer? He couldn't do anything for Jesus. His resume was probably not all that impressive of what he had accomplished for God. Clearly, the man was on a cross. But rather than try to work to impress Jesus, he just asked for mercy, and he got it. But justice was still served because the one he asked was on the cross, paying for his penalty and our penalty. Why is it fair? Well, it's not a question of fair. It's God is merciful and God is just. We get mercy Jesus was on the end of God's justice. Question three, why didn't Jesus try to persuade the other criminal? This guy is clearly as good as dead. Clearly as good as dead. Jesus, why didn't you do something? Didn't you care about this guy? Didn't you, like, there's only two other people next to you, Jesus. You know your end is near. You know, Jesus, you're about to say it is finished. Why not a personal plea to this God? I think one of the things that a lot of people wrestle with is choice. And what's interesting when we wrestle with choice is we get angry and frustrated when God makes a choice. Well, that's not fair. God can't choose that. God can't do it like that. That's impending or impeding on my choice. And so when God does make a choice, we get frustrated. But we get equally frustrated and angered when God loves us and honors us enough to let us choose. Oh, well, God doesn't care. Why didn't he choose to talk to him? Clearly, on either scenario, God either, he just does not care, or he's in the wrong for making a choice. Now, I don't want to speculate too much, and I don't want to read too much into this, but I just find it interesting at best that there's three crosses. Usually, uh, when the Romans would crucify, there would be lines and lines and lines of crosses. And maybe there were, and the authors just chose to focus on these three. But I have the story in front of me in all four gospel accounts that there was three crosses, two criminals and Jesus, one on the left and one on the right. To me, at least, it just seems like this is such a picture of God's gift to us and choice. One chose to curse him, and Jesus loved and honored him enough to let him do that. One chose to pray. One chose to say, will you remember me? And Jesus honored and loved him enough 
to accept that prayer and take him into paradise. If the question is simply, why didn't Jesus reach out to this guy? Well, the reality is Jesus was on a cross reaching out to him. But Jesus is not going to force his way into anyone's life. He will let you choose. One chose to reject and deny and mock, and the other chose to cry for mercy. Jesus loved them both the same, loved and honored them enough to let them choose what they would do. Now, if I've learned anything about just years of walking with God, is that God has been relentless, and I think we'll even mention this this morning, that God has just been relentless in pursuing me. God's stance towards you, towards me, is not, well, I hope you figure it out one day, and when you're ready, I'll, I'll be there for you. God is relentless in pursuing you. For some of you, God's pursuit through to you is through pain. For some of you, God's pursuit of you is through prosperity. Either way or somewhere in the middle, God is absolutely relentless in pursuing us. But at the end of the day, God loves and honors us enough to give us the choice. Will you choose a God who loves you, who sent a son to die on a cross for you so that you could be brought to God? Or will you reject the salvation that a holy God has provided for you? He loves you enough to let you choose. For me, I, uh, it was when I was about 24, so this is now about 16 years ago, uh, I remember this very distinct moment where I had an encounter with God where God gave me a choice. And I don't, I wrote this down, it, it's pretty darn close to exactly how it happened, but this was the question, the choice that God put before me. Michael, are you done pursuing your idols? Are you done doing your thing? If you are, then I'm ready to take you on a ride. You won't regret. But if you're not done, Michael, then I'll let you taste the emptiness of the cup you're drinking from. I was 24, and I remember distinctly where I was. And I remember hearing from the Lord, not an audible voice, but a God speaking, pursuing relentlessly my heart. Michael, are you done? Have you gotten to the end of yourself yet? Are you done chasing this idol? Are you done making it about you? Because if you are, I am so ready to take you on a ride. But if you're not done then I will let you choose to continue to walk the path that you have been on for some time. And I love you enough to let you taste the emptiness of this cup that you've been drinking from in hopes that one day you will see what you need most is not what you're pursuing, but what you need most is a God who's been pursuing you for 24 years. Why didn't God pursue this guy? Or why didn't Jesus make one final plea? He did. He was on the cross, but God loved him enough to let him choose. I want to ask you, and uh, we'll finish with this, what God asked me now nearly 16 years ago. Are you done? <laughs> Are you done doing your thing? Are you done pursuing your idols? Or have you gotten to the end of you yet? Because I'm fully confident that if you say, yeah, I'm, just, I'm done. I'm done doing my thing. God has such a ride for you. He has such an, a journey that he wants to take you on. 
He wants you to experience life in the most fullest sense with him. You can choose that today. But if you're not done, then God is gracious to love you and to honor you enough to let you continue to walk the path you're on. And I think the promise would be the same, that you will taste the emptiness of the cup that you're drinking. Because if it's not the cup that God's given you, it will be a bitter taste. And God loves you enough to let you taste that. I would hope today, as we would finish this encounter series, that you would say, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done chasing this thing, my thing, doing my way. And Jesus, if you have something... I receive it. Now, those are three questions, and the truth that I just would finish with in less than a minute. <laughs> I don't know about you when you first heard this story, and maybe you're hearing this story for the very first time today, but I know when I first heard this story, I was just so blown away. Like, wow, really? Like, Jesus said yes? I was so blown away because up until that point in time, I was living, I was on the performance treadmill. I just believed that if I just worked hard enough, was a good enough kid, read my Bible, went to church, saved, uh, served, gave money, that kind of thing, you know, was kind to people, that God would just be pleased with me enough. And I just was so encountered by this story years back. And that one truth that I I honestly learned back then and has ultimately changed and transformed my life. And I want you to write this down. Uh, if you've got a pen and a paper, uh, this is the one truth that I want you to see not only in this story, but in all 12 encounter story, this has been the theme. And the truth is this. The grace of God is absolutely amazing. Now, some of you are like, wow, I was hoping for something a little bit more... I kind of knew that. And if that's you, I would. do you really know that? The grace of God is absolutely amazing. I certainly see it in this story in Luke 23. But I see it in my life. I'm no different than this guy. My crimes might look a little bit different, but I'm just as hard-hearted and rebellious as this kid was. The grace of God is absolutely amazing. I just want you to know that. See, I want to spend the rest of my life discovering just how amazing it is. I want to walk with Jesus because his grace was revealed to me. He gave me the grace enough to even receive that. And in many ways, and I'd invite you to make your life about this as well. This is Acts chapter 20, verse 24. This is the Apostle Paul. If you're familiar with the Apostle Paul, man, he tried killing people because they, they talked about Jesus. So this was a man who was worse than this criminal. But when the grace of God showed up in his life, his testimony, his truth is the grace of God is absolutely amazing. And he says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, 
If only I may finish the race, complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. If you are going to give yourself to something, give yourself to this, the task of testifying both in word and deed, in life, that the grace of God is absolutely amazing. So that when people would look at you, they'd be like, wow, what is so grace of God? It's absolutely amazing. Can I, can I tell you? Now, what's interesting, this story didn't happen. But I wonder if this guy got off the cross. I wondered about his life. Would it have been lived any differently? Like if this guy was taken immediately into paradise. Hypothetical scenario here. Jesus says, you know what? Paradise is granted to you. I guarantee you, I promise you that you will be with me in paradise. But I want you to continue living. And he released him, set him free from the cross. I wondered how that guy would have lived. I wondered if this guy would have walked around asking, well, why not sin? Do whatever I want. He's going to forgive me anyways. I I wonder if this guy would have lived saying things like, well, I'm thankful for paradise promised, but I'm a little bit more interested in establishing my kingdom here. Like, I wonder if this guy would have lived wondering, well, maybe Jesus wasn't really telling me the truth. Maybe there's something more that I have to do to get paradise. I don't know. He was taken immediately into paradise. But I know if I would have met that man and I would have seen him asking and saying and wondering these things, I would have, I would have said, come on, man. Live not asking, saying, or wondering. Live in light of the grace you've received when you met Jesus on the cross. I would have smacked him and said, what are you doing? Why do you ask questions of like, well, why not sin? Because he'll forgive me. Why do you mess around with building a kingdom here when paradise has been promised to you? Why do you live wondering if now it's really enough what Jesus has done and you think you have to add something? This guy was taken immediately up to heaven, but you and I have not been. If you're here, you're still alive, and you now know of the grace of God that has been poured out to you through his son Jesus on the cross. Wouldn't we yell at this guy and say, what are you doing? He gave you paradise. Live in light of the paradise he's given you. Why are you dabbling in sin? Why are you dabbling in trying to establish your name, your kingdom? Why are you dabbling in trying now to perform for him? That's the message I think most of us, if not all of us, would just yell at this guy. But yet, why do we do that? If Jesus has promised you paradise and guaranteed it by going to the cross for you, what would it look like for you to live light, life in light of the paradise that's been promised? I absolutely love this story that we've looked at today. It is such a picture of the grace of God poured out in one man, but it is such a reminder that this grace was not just made available for him, but it's made available for us. And if you're a Christian here today, I really want you to 
answer the tough question for yourself. Is your life a reflection of the grace that Jesus has given you on the cross? And if it's not, if you're still dabbling in disobedience, rebellion, sin, if you're still dabbling in trying to establish your kingdom, your way, your will, or if you're still dabbling in just performing, please repent of that. And live like a kid who knows his daddy's the king and has a kingdom for you. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, one day you will meet God face to face and you can try to impress him with a life well lived or you can make the decision now to say, man, I know I need a savior. I don't have it all together. I'm far from perfect and I need saving. Would you, if you never have, look to Jesus for your salvation? I'll read these uh, last few verses in Ephesians, starting at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. I'm going to read three verses. I'm going to go straight into just praying and then just enter into a time of worship and communion. I just want you to hear these verses. So if, even if you would, maybe close your eyes and just let the words, God's words, just soak into your heart. This is Ephesians chapter 2. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Jesus, I give you thanks for your grace is absolutely amazing. God, that is maybe not new news for some here, but God, I pray that news, that your grace is absolutely amazing, would just shape how we live. God, if there is one if not more, that are here today and they do, do not know you, Jesus, as Savior. If that's you, my plea, please pray. What one thief did, he looked to Jesus on the cross and he said, will you remember me? Offer that prayer to Jesus now. Receive Jesus as Savior. Jesus, I give thanks that your grace is absolutely amazing. As you're ready and, and as we worship in song, if you're a Christian, please come today and celebrate communion and uh, take a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine or juice and just say amazing grace. Absolutely amazing what Jesus has done for us.
If you stand up here for a few moments, please take the freedom to do that. It is absolutely amazing what God has done for us. His grace is so amazing. And if you're not a Christian, become a Christian by crying out to Jesus for Savior and then come celebrate what Jesus has done for you.